Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey listeners, if you find value in this podcast and would like to support this project, please consider signing up on Patreon, where you can support the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind-the-scenes updates. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. I would love to see you there. And now, on with the show. Here's what's coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. I think the best part of cruising is really getting to choose the pace that you travel. So if you want to stay somewhere, you can change your plans at the drop of a hat and you don't have to like rebook your flights or add on to a hotel room and it doesn't really cost you anything extra because you're on the hook and you can just, okay, we're just not going to move today. We're going to stay here another day. And it lets you kind of travel, I don't know, j- just slower, I think is the big thing for us. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, we are talking all about exploring the American East Coast, and you'll hear all about Lake Champlain in Vermont and New York, sailing in Maine, going up and down the ICW, and also what it's like to spend the winter in the Bahamas. My guests are Gwen and Andy from Abroad Reach Travel, who planned extensively and for many years for their cruising life, and last year they became full-time cruisers. Here is my chat with Gwen and Andy. So your YouTube channel and blog offer a lot of practical tips on different locations and the liverboard lifestyle in general. And I cannot wait to dive into all of that. But first, 
Let's rewind back to the time before you lived on the boat. What were your lives like? Can you paint a little bit of a picture? Sure. Uh, we were living in New Hampshire since we graduated college in 2011. And we were living basically about as far away from water you can get in New England. <laughs> but we were keeping our boat on Lake Champlain or on the coast of Maine um, during that time and weekend cruising going back and forth, driving two and a half hours on Friday night and two and a half hours on Sunday afternoon just to get our fix. I worked, we worked really traditional nine to five jobs, Andy working in engineering, and I actually worked in banking for a really long time. Uh, and then, I mean, we basically spent all of our free time either sailing or fixing houses to save money to afford this cruising lifestyle eventually. So we basically flipped out two houses to uh, make this dream possible. So we spent a lot of our free time doing those two things. So I take that it was a bit of a long term goal for you, this lifestyle. How long were you actually planning and preparing and dreaming and doing all that? We met in 2009. And I think as soon as we knew we wanted to get married, we knew we wanted to cruise. So I'd say it was probably 10 years of planning and and saving and that kind of stuff ahead of time. Um, we got really serious in the last, I'd say, year and a half leading up, but it was a, definitely a long-term goal the whole time. Yeah, that's how it usually seems to be, that it's there on the background and then at a couple of years or a year and a half before it starts ramping up, so... That is great to hear. And now you are finally living this lifestyle, which is fantastic. And, you know, through doing this podcast, I've learned that there are a lot of different approaches to this lifestyle once you get going. And more specifically, like, how do people keep it going financially and keep it sort of financially sustainable? And I would love to hear your strategy or approach to this do you work as you sail now or are you taking a bit of a sabbatical from employment or are you self-employed or something else entirely? I do work um, part-time. I do some engineering consulting for the company that I used to work for. Not very many hours, like five to ten a week, but it's enough to keep us, keep us going at, at our current levels. Yeah, and I currently don't work outside of our YouTube channel, which uh, barely gets us, I don't know. Breaks even? Yeah, the, I think that everyone thinks they're going to make it rich on YouTube. And uh, that's definitely not the case when you're first starting out or even I mean, we, we were in it about three years and still we we make, I don't know, maybe $15 a month doing it. So it's enough for like, one set of drinks out a, a month. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, YouTube is one of those things that it can absolutely be a full time job, just maybe not a full time income until a lot, you know, a few years into it, if even then. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's not a, it, it's not a get rich quick scheme by any stretch of the imagination. But we're, but we're fortunate that we got a couple different streams of income. So yeah, and we also did have a really decent sized cruising kitty before we left. Uh, we had what we thought would take would hold us over for about five years before we left. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is the advantage of you know, planning it for it for a long time. And also, I really like the approach of part time work as well, because, you know, it's not necessarily all or nothing, there is that happy medium as well. 
And of course, the cruising lifestyle is a little bit cheaper for most people anyway than living on land. So uh, I can see how that part-time work could actually bring in something that is quite meaningful when you're living on a boat. For sure. And we're so fortunate with the company that Andy works for that they're so flexible with us. Like if there's weeks that he can't get hours in, they're really great about it. So we we have basically the ideal remote situation. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. I'm always so happy to hear these situations where someone has been able to take their job with them, uh, even though this new lifestyle brings in some added challenges. But it's great to hear that you've managed to do that. So I recently realized that there is a fairly popular sailing area pretty close to me. And you mentioned it already. You mentioned uh, Lake Champlain, which is in sort of state of New York and Vermont and a little bit in, in Quebec on the Canadian side too. And I know you have a lot of experience in this area because every time I Google something about this, it is either your blog or YouTube channel that pops up in the search results. So Thank you for that. And I would love to talk more about sailing in Lake Champlain because it starts out it's like two and a half hours from me and I had no idea about this. (laughs) My sort of first super general question is what is sailing there like? Because it's obviously a lake. So does that translate to easy sailing? Like are the winds consistent or does that pose its own challenges? It can be all over the place. In the spring and summer, it's pretty mild sailing at 10 to 15 knots, typically out of the south most of the time. And it's wonderful. You can We kept our boat in Malice Bay. We could sail across the lake to Valcor Island or some of the other places we'd like to visit in a couple hours. And it was nice. Um, but it almost seems like as soon as Labor Day happens, it, it like flips a switch and it starts blowing 25 knots out of the south. And it, the lake gets really, really choppy. And rough. So that typically is like the end of the season for a lot of people. But we were fortunate we kept it in Mallet's Bay, which is like a like an offshoot onto the side. And it was pretty protected. So we could actually sail around a bit in the fall and avoid going out on the broad lake, as they called it. Yeah, I think that the the thing that makes Lake Champlain a little bit of a challenge is that it is in a pretty significant valley. And when you get winds out of the north or south with no east or west component, it really picks up the lake quite a bit, but it's all short period wind wave. So it's not like you're ever seeing like rollers, like big ocean rollers. You're only seeing that like miserable kind of like just pounding into it kind of thing. And what about like, what is the, you know, what's around there when you are sailing there? Like, are there communities or towns activities outdoor things to do like is it an interesting place to sail i guess like as a destination definitely some of our burlington vermont which is a really nice city with nice restaurants and lots of things to do right there's a lot going on in burlington just there culturally there's a lot going on which is nice there's there's always something going on at the waterfront festivals and that kind of stuff and then beyond burlington i think that most of Champlain cruising grounds is a lot of just like natural beauty, which it has in abundance. Um, there's a lot of good little hikes you can do and a lot of um, great little swimming. The fishing is great if you like fishing. One of our favorites was a New York State Park, Valcor Island, which has a bunch of coves all around the outside. With any wind direction, there's a place to go on that island. So it's a pretty popular destination for us and lots of others. 
lots of hiking. There's a lighthouse to check out. And then what, what, what are your favorite places, right? I really like Burton Island, too, which is up a little bit further north. And that's a Vermont State Park, but they have um, a lot of great little hiking trails. And there's a cute little marina there. You can rent bikes. There's all kinds of kind of fun stuff to do there. There's definitely several months worth of stuff to do on Lake Champlain. If you wanted to make it part of like a cruising route, if you wanted to spend a month or two, you could definitely do that and not get bored. Okay. Have you ever gone to the Canadian side? Can you even sail to the Canadian side? I know there's there's not much of the lake in Quebec, but it looks like looking at the map, there's a little bit. Is there anything there? So technically you can, but there's there's one bay that's on the Canadian side and it's too shallow for most sailboats to go up there. It's also very, very buggy up there because the lake is so shallow. It has more kind of a pond feel to it. So you get a lot of mosquitoes and black flies up there. It's also a pain to cross the border. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you don't want to do any border crossings if it's not really, truly, actually worth it. But one of the cool things about the Lake Champlain is, in fact, that it goes and it connects to the Hudson River, like through the Champlain Canal. And therefore, there is access to the Atlantic Ocean where, so, you know, when the sailing season is over or the, the black flies get too much, you can just... Uh, you know, keep on going south. And I know you've done this transit. So how long does that canal transit actually take? Is it a long one? Uh, The canal itself, uh, you could probably do it in a day, depending on what time of year, depending on how much daylight you have. Uh, We did it in two days because we were traveling at only like five knots at the time and in October or September. So we didn't have a ton of daylight. So it was not quite as you could push it if you have a faster vessel and do it in the canal portion in a day. But you do have to time the that like if you get a bunch of like faster boats in front of you, all of the locks on the canal are on demand. They're not on a schedule at all. So if somebody sneaks in in front of you, you have to wait for it to go up or down and then back again. So sometimes that can really cause it to be a much longer day than you might anticipate. Okay, yeah. Well, that is a lot shorter than I actually thought. I thought it uh, would take at least over four days or something, but I didn't look that much into it. But I know one of the maybe hassles is that you do have to unstep your mast because I think the bridges are really low, like 14 feet or something. So how does this work? Like, well, first of all, I have no idea. Is this a costly operation, but also like logistically? Are there, I assume there are some services on either end that can help you with this? Yeah, there's a, there's a one marina uh, near the end of l- the southern part of Lake Champlain whose primary business is unstepping masts for people heading south and putting them back up for people arriving on the lake. And it took probably, what, like a, two hours? Two hours to have the mast, mast lowered, and then you build like a little wooden A-frame on the front and the back that the mast sits on while you're going on the canal. And then once you get to the other end, there's a couple places... One place that's a kind of a DIY with a crane. It is entirely DIY. Like if you have never stepped a mast yourself, we would not recommend doing that. That's at Castleton. uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. We on our Alberg 30 had a tabernacle system that we had stepped our mast, self-stepped our mast for years with. And so we were like, oh, we can totally handle it. Like we've done this before. No big deal. But what we didn't really realize until the mast was up off the deck was that uh, it is not in a no-wake zone. 
and there are big ships going up to Albany uh, that pass right by. And as we had the mast, like, just about to go into the step, it was like we got stuck with like a pretty decent sized wake. It was not uh, the most fun. That is definitely the most economical way to do it, but not one I think I'd recommend. And then there's a few other places on Catskill Creek that will put it back up for you. I think it was round trip. I think it was less than $500 to do it, taking the mass down and then putting it back up. I want to say that it was like 150 for us to take it down. And then I think we paid like $50 to DIY it ourselves back up. I'd say it's probably about 150 200 to get it re-stepped. But these are 2020 prices, so I don't remember. I don't, don't know right off the top of my head what they are now. Yeah, and I'm sure, as with everything, uh, everything's more expensive now. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. But yeah, that's interesting. And it, it kind of does seem like a really nerve-wracking procedure to do. So I'm kind of not looking forward to ever doing that if I can avoid it. But uh, I think another curious aspect that is both kind of fascinating and terrifying is once you eventually get spit out of the canal, and then you're in Hudson River and essentially end up in New York City, like going by Manhattan and Statue of Liberty, which looks amazing. I've seen lots of photos from people on Instagram who done this, but it just seems like it is such a hectic area to sail. And so how is that experience like when you get spit out of the presumably quiet canal into a hectic river? Do you have any tips on how to prepare for that? And how did that go for you? I think it, you kind of get eased into it because you're starting off with some commercial traffic on the Hudson as you go down and you have about, I don't know, it took us two days before we were really kind of in the the thick of New York City traffic. So there's only so much of it that actually goes all the way up the Hudson. So you kind of get to ease into seeing some of the big ships, especially since we were on the lake and weren't really dealing with commercial traffic all that often. And you don't even really see that in Maine all that often when we were sailing there. It's mostly just lobster boats. So to start kind of seeing some of the bigger ships ahead of time was helpful. And then AIS is a godsend um, and is so, so useful in those kinds of areas, I think that you would agree with that. Yeah, you could see the you could see the ship on AIS around the corner before you were actually able to see it with your eyes. And take a evasive maneuver action at that point. Yeah, and then once you're in New York City proper at the southern end, I don't know how anyone would single hand that because it really took two sets of eyeballs for us to really be paying attention and seeing everything that was going on. We inadvertently did New York City the very first time. On a weekend, it was actually, I think it was Labor Day weekend. We don't recommend doing that again. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so there was a ton of recreational traffic at the same time. But I think besides AIS and knowing how to use it and knowing how to read it ahead of time, watching for the Staten Island ferries would be my biggest piece of advice because those guys don't move for anybody. <laughs> and they, there's a whole bunch of like other smaller ferries. And, and they'll just, they just fast ferries and they just go around you. Knowing your rules of the road ahead of time, knowing when you're the stand-on vessel, I think that that's the, that's the biggest thing you can do per, to prepare, is just knowing when you're the one who needs to make the maneuver to avoid the collision and when you need to stand on. Because standing on is just as important as changing course. Yeah, those are actually really good tips, because of course, you know, if you're just spent the summer in the lake, maybe it's more spacious over there. And, uh, you know, then you get kind of a rude wake up call once you <laughs> enter that area. So it's definitely good to 
keep those rules in mind. And uh, I know because I've been Googling this, and as I said, your uh, blog and YouTube channel always come up uh, when I Google things about the ICW, and I know you spent some time in there, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, would you consider it as a sort of a means to an end on your way south or north, or as a, almost a destination in itself, or something in between? You could treat it both ways. Some people just see it exactly as you mentioned, a, me a means to get south when the weather is adverse or you don't desire to go on the, quote, outside. And then others see it just as a trip, and it's like a, there's a whole great loop bunch, and this is a quarter of the trip for them. Yeah. So uh, we greatly enjoyed it. I think that we've treated it both ways, and it definitely is a lot more fun when you treat it as a destination in itself, and you treat it as the journey is the is the destination kind of situation where you're stopping every 30 miles instead of every 60 miles and you're and you're really enjoying the small towns and you're taking your time and you're doing it in six seven weeks versus we've done it in 31 we've done norfolk to punta gorda florida including the okeechobee waterway uh in 31 days which you're going to be exhausted it's going to be pretty miserable and i think that's where the icw reputation comes from is people treating it like a delivery instead of as like part of the cruising experience. Yeah, those are similar things that I heard from someone else uh, about the ICW as well. And of course, this is very subjective. But do you yourself find that there are interesting things along the way to see and do? Yeah, for sure. I think I mean, we really enjoy it. I don't think we would continue to do it if we didn't. It obviously takes a little bit longer. And that can be frustrating sometimes. But I think that there are so many great little towns that you'd never see or get to by car that are just like so much fun to stop at. A, a lot of them in North Carolina and some of them in, in South Carolina. The Georgia coast is beautiful. I mean, there's just so much to see. And when you go in with the mindset that you're taking the ICW to see it all, it it's some of the most beautiful places in America. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've seen some of your videos because I went on a bit of a bench watch on your uh, ICW playlist. And it does look like really cool. Like I think I would enjoy it. But what about from like a practical point of view? Like, is it easy enough to provision along the way? Like there are towns, you know, frequently enough, and they're pretty well equipped? Or are they are we talking about really small towns that have a very limited selection of <laughs> groceries and, and thing, other things to buy. I don't think that we've ever really struggled to find groceries on the ICW. There's there's places that have grocery stores within a block of where you stop or a marina or something like that. Um, Oriental comes to mind that there's a nice grocery store and there's free bicycles and you ride your bicycle to the grocery store. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's these islands in Georgia that have Nothing. A general store that got a few things and that's it. It's everywhere in between. So. Yeah, I think most of the time you're going to be walking to the grocery store, but it's not going to be much more than three quarters to a mile to get there, which as cruisers that if, as non-cruisers, if you told me I had to walk a mile to the grocery store before I started cruising, I'd be like, oh, my God, you can't I like I couldn't imagine it. But now I'm like, oh, only a mile. That's fine. Like, no problem. But there are definitely some like kind of provisioning destinations on the ICW places that it is much easier to do. 
And the other thing that we do a lot is we typically will spend at least two nights on the ICW as we go south, once in Myrtle Beach, which um, is a really nice, cheap marina. And we do Instacart deliveries to the marinas when we do that. So then we don't have to worry about getting an Uber or walking or whatever else. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's actually a good idea. I actually never thought about that, but that makes sense. If you can get that all nice and delivered right to you instead of, you know, like you said, getting, getting an Uber or a taxi or renting a car and then doing that. So, yeah, that's that's a cool idea. I've actually had groceries delivered to like a boat ramp instead, like use the boat ramp as the address. And like I wrote in like the notes to the delivery, like, like, I know this sounds weird, but we're living on a boat and we're going to be arriving in my dinghy and they're totally cool with it. They don't really care as long as you tip well. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, well, that's good to know that it works. You actually have a great video on your YouTube channel where you explain that there is definitely a learning curve to the ICW. And I'm wondering, could you talk a little more, a little bit more about this? Like, what are some of the things first timers should know about? I think the biggest thing is understanding the chart system you're going to use. Depths on the ICW are obviously a problem. The first, our first trip down, we had just started using Aquamap. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer surveys that go along with those, which is an amazing tool for the ICW. But we were getting used to that software system while we were trying to travel and everything. And I think we probably would have been better served by figuring that out ahead of time. The other big learning curve, I think, is that as sailors in particular, we don't do a lot of like chit chat on the VHF. And there is a lot of VHF chatter and you're expected to respond a lot on the ICW. So just making sure you understand how you're supposed to respond or you're supposed to hail, all those kinds of things can definitely make it a lot easier initially, because right out the gate, you'll start getting people asking for slow passes and expecting you to respond. And there are certain ways that that happens. So, okay. So, you know, knowing your charts, you know, knowing the communication. So kind of, again, go into the etiquette of, uh, of cruising and sailing, but Actually, is there any or some sailing to be done on the ICW, or is it mainly just a motorway? Oh yeah, for sure, there is. We've sailed quite a bit. There's all the pretty much all the sounds in North Carolina are sailable, and then there's some bigger sounds in Georgia and South Carolina that are definitely sailable as well. Um, Charleston Harbor. You're going to be motoring 80% of the time, but there's that 20% is pretty, is pretty fantastic. It's a lot of like jib only or spinnaker only sailing for us because getting the main up and then really the problem is getting the main back down when you want to stop sailing is typically the reason that we don't put the main up a lot on the ICW, but we do a lot of jib and a lot of spinnaker sailing. Okay, well, that's good to know that there is even some sailing, because for a moment there, I was thinking like, wait, is this just, uh, you know, looking at some of the photos on Instagram, and uh, some clips on YouTube, it almost looks like it's just like a narrow, not quite a canal way, but in, in some sections. So it's good to know that there's actually some sailing to be done as well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, ben, you mentioned the death um, it being a bit of an issue there. Do you know if that kind of is it's a bit unreliable? Like, does it change from year to another, depending on the season? Like, um, obviously, if you have a six-foot draft, you might want to, want to pay more attention than if you have a four-foot draft. Yeah, there's there are a lot of what they call traditional shoaling areas that are really affected by weather shoaling. So if a big storm comes in, it'll shift the sand around. A lot of those are in North Carolina and South Carolina. And then there's spots that just seem to shoal up every two years. They dredge it, and then two years later, it's shoaled again. Um, and most of those are in Georgia. But I think that um, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of really good guidebooks that will point you at those spots. It's not like you're just going to be kind of going along and then just randomly there'll be a shoal. If you have a, a mile-by-mile guidebook or you've really done any kind of research at all, the, the spots that will really give you trouble are ones that everyone's going to point out to you. And there's, if you're on Active Captain or Waterway Guide, there's comments on the chart. It shoaled in through here. I got through with eight feet of water at high tide type of thing. Yeah, there's a lot of those kinds of notes. Right. So, yeah, maybe just, you know, keep an eye out on the on the latest conversations as well as well as your boat's uh, actual equipment and what they're telling you about the depth, for sure. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's not, like, nail-bitingly shallow the entire way. It's, no. There's plenty of water, except for a few spots here and there. I'd say it's, like, 99% fine, and the 1% is really shallow. Is really shallow. We've gone now from Lake Champlain down to the ICW, and then, you know, ICW ends in Florida, and, of course, the sort of natural continuum from there is to go to the Bahamas, which seems like a very popular place these days. And on your Instagram account, you give a bit of a, I would almost say a reality check on winter in the Bahamas. And you talked about, you know, being stuck on the boat due to high winds for an extended amount of time. And I'd love to hear more about winter and the Bahamas, but also I know that you sail with that lovely dog called Aiden. So how does that work with him? Does he do his business on the boats or do you have to dinghy him ashore you know, no matter what the weather is? So most of the time we'll we'll go to shore most days, twice a day for him, regardless of the weather. We may get a little wet, might get a little rained on, but most days we do that. He he will go on the boat occasionally if if he has no other option but he he doesn't like it yeah he'll hold out for sure thinking if he can see shore he'll definitely hold out um but a lot of times what ends up happening just to make it less wet getting to shore in those high wind days is i typically stay on the boat and aiden and andy go to shore um so andy can get our dinghy up on a plane because if there's one thing we have learned after our first cruising season in the bahamas it's that you really need a planing dinghy, and ours will not plane right now with two of us. So that has limited us a little bit, and we're looking into resolving that over the uh, hurricane season here. So, but I think that I do think we were underprepared for just how windy it was. And we've heard from a lot of veteran cruisers and locals and stuff that 
this last season in the 2021-22 winter was particularly challenging in terms of wind. So I think there are kind of a couple ways to handle it. And I think that we might need to change a little bit of how we do that. But I think you either use those days to just chill and relax and you're kind of stuck on the boat, but because you can't really swim that much because the water's choppy and it's usually because of a cold front. So it's a little bit chillier. And and then there's those who take up things like kiteboarding and foil boarding and windsurfing and they're out having a blast in the anchorage while the rest of us are just sitting there grumpy. So uh, I think we may be considering finding a, a high wind hobby for next year. <laughs> oh, that's a good survival technique. Like how to survive winter in the Bahamas? Well, get into wind sports. <laughs> yeah, I think we were kind of shocked about how little protection there is from clocking winds in the Bahamas. I mean, we grew up sailing in Maine, where there's a million hurricane holes and everything's 360 protection. It's so easy to find protection. And there's so few of those options in the Bahamas. And it's a little nerve wracking. But I think now we have a little bit better grasp on where those spots are, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. And you said, you know, this was your first season um, spending a winter in the Bahamas. So obviously, the, the wind aspect uh, was a bit of a surprise and the lack of uh, protection there. But on the flip side, or on the positive side, What was something that surprised you in a positive manner? I think everything else. It's just as great as everyone says it is. You kind of like, you hear that it's like one of the best cruising grounds in the world. And and you're like, oh, well, like, you know, you're kind of partial to, to what you've seen, especially since we grew up in Maine. And I'm very partial to Maine as a cruising ground. And, uh, and so I'm like, you know, it's got to be great. Like you can swim everywhere. No, it's really as good as everyone says it is. Like the water temps are fantastic. The water is like crystal clear. You, the visibility is unreal. The temperatures are perfect. You're not too hot. You're not too cold. Most of the, most of the winter. I mean, and it's just absolutely stunning. It, it's just one, one Island after another, one reef after another, it, it doesn't get old. <laughs> Towns are lovely. Everyone is really friendly. Yeah, it does look and sound really amazing. And it's kind of easy to go with a dog as well, right? Like it, it doesn't seem like a, that big of a hassle. No, it really isn't. I was kind of surprised at how like lean, like not lenient, but just how like relaxed about bringing the dog in that the customs officials and stuff were. Because when you read online, like it looks like it's really like in depth and there's all this stuff you have to do. As long as your paperwork's in order, they really don't care. They just stamp you in, which is nice. And then there's so many nice beaches that he can run on without a leash. I mean, obviously, you have to be careful of places where there's like the iguanas, the rock iguanas that are endangered. Obviously, we don't take him ashore to those kinds of islands, but wild pigs. Yeah, or nesting birds. We try to pay attention to wildlife and where we let him roam free, but there's plenty of places where you can let him off leash and just run and run, which he loves. So. Yeah, that's great for sure. And uh, you're now back in Florida. Uh, are you thinking already? I'm looking ahead for next winter. Are you thinking of going back to the Bahamas? Would you repeat the whole experience hoping that it's maybe less windy next winter? The plan is definitely to do the Bahamas next winter. Um, we're going to be in the Chesapeake for hurricane season. So we're not going to go as far north as we did last year. It was a long haul to go all the way to Maine and back in a single year. So I think that we're going to Probably not do that, especially since New England weather in the fall can just be a real challenge to get back south again. Um, so we're we're headed to Chesapeake and then we're going to turn around in October and head south again and hopefully get to the Bahamas earlier next year. So fingers crossed. 
Yeah, that sounds like a really great plan. But actually, you mentioned Maine, and I don't think I've talked to anybody who's uh, been sailing in Maine area. So tell me about sailing in Maine, because uh, all I know so far is lobster pots and fog. So what else? <laughs> um, lobster pots and fog are definitely deterring factors, but <laughs> but it's it is absolutely stunning. Um, and there's not because of the lobster pots and the fog, you don't necessarily get the crowds you do in some of the other more kind of beautiful cruising grounds in the u.s that you get elsewhere because it, it is a challenging area you're not going to be sunbathing in maine in the summer it's it's about 65 70 degrees is about as much as you're going to get on the coast you're not swimming either you're not well i swim but the water's 55 most to 60 degrees <laughs> most normal people don't swim <laughs> Hey, I'm from Canada. I, I could swim in a cold lake too, so that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'd swim there with you. I think that most of what everything in Maine is, is is glacier carved. So if you've ever seen any of like the pictures of, of cruising in Sweden, which is another really kind of popular cruising ground, you're you're anchoring like right up near the rocks. And I mean, you could everyone uses rowing dinghies in Maine because you can get so close to shore all the time and there's a million tiny little uninhabited islands and lobstermen you can buy lobster right off the boats from. And I don't know. There's just so many great reasons to cruise in Maine. Yeah, I kind of pictured it being a little bit similar to like Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, which are obviously not that far geographically. So I can understand it has that sort of little bit of a rugged wilderness vibe to it. Yeah, it's it's very similar. You deal with the tides, not to the extent that you do in Nova Scotia, but it still is 14 foot tides. So that can be challenging when anchoring, but it's it's definitely more remote and you do have to be a little bit more self-sufficient. But it is it it does have that same kind of like Nova Scotia vibe to it, except for more lobster pots. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it all adds to the experience, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that, you know, you planned for this lifestyle, you chased the dream for a while, and now you've been living the lifestyle. So I would love to hear what have you enjoyed most in this cruising lifestyle? I think the best part of cruising is really getting to choose the pace that you travel. So if you want to stay somewhere, you can change your plans at the drop of a hat and you don't have to like rebook your flights or add on to a hotel room. And it doesn't really cost you anything extra because you're on the hook and you can just like, okay, we're just not going to move today. We're going to stay here another day. And it lets you kind of travel. I don't know, just, just slower. I think is the big thing for us. Another thing, big thing for me was you get to see all these places that you would normally never see that either there's no other way to access it. Like some of those remote islands out in Maine or in the Bahamas to those places that you probably wouldn't stop if you're taking a road trip on your two weeks of vacation. Yeah, that's definitely a big, a big piece of it. I think that those places that you can really only access by boat, it feels really special to be able to see those places. Yeah, and then slow travel in general, it's become such a kind of a trend or something that a lot of people aspire to. And it sounds, as a concept, it sounds fantastic, you know, being able to spend a lot of time having the freedom to take your home somewhere and just keeping it there as long as you want or as little as you want. So yeah, I think that's kind of what most people are hoping the lifestyle would be. So it is great to hear that that is actually something that you have proven that it is for you. 
Yeah, the only thing that really holds you back is weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me to my next question then, which may be related because I was going to ask. Then on the flip side, is there anything that is or has been sort of repeatedly or consistently challenging or irritating? Apart from the the wintering、uh, winds in the Bahamas, is there anything else that maybe you didn't see coming, or it's just getting on your nerves, or anything like that? Yeah, I think that prior to living on a boat, I did not have an understanding of how much of this lifestyle is contingent on weather. And I am a self-proclaimed control freak, so、um, not having control over that aspect of things has been a really big challenge for me. And I sometimes will just there are days when we like right now we're in Vero Beach and we don't have to look at the weather because this is 360 degree protection, and I just get a break from having to worry about it at all. And I think we've had to do that because I will obsess about it. To the point that it's probably unhealthy. <laughs> the other thing is that sometimes you forget, like something that's like jumping in the car and going down the store to get like a bolt or a nut you need for some project. On a boat, it's just ten times harder. Like if I wanted to go get one right now, I have to go jump in the dinghy, go go walk to the bus stop, wait for the bus, get off the bus, walk to the hardware store, and then do the whole thing in reverse and take half the day. It would take half a day so, to get、so、a bolt. You, you got to plan things out a lot more carefully. Yeah, if if you are a bit of a control freak, then maybe you're also a planner and organizer in your mind. So you can't control the weather. Then maybe you can control the spare parts. But of course, you know, as per Murphy's law, you've run out of everything when you need them the most. So <laughs> usually, yeah, we we are pretty good. I have spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of what we have on the boat and all that stuff, but. It always seems to be like the one thing you need is the one thing we don't have kind of situation, and you would never have space if you carried all the parts you could possibly need with you. There's you'd have no space for food, so you would just have a second boat. You'd need the second boat to tow behind you. Yeah, that starts to sound like a mechayat now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, obviously, you know that one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you are obviously quite a few steps ahead of me and、uh, ahead of a lot of our listeners. So I would love to get your tips or advice for someone like me who is sort of looking to buy a boat、uh, in actually a very similar area, you know, the East Coast, Canada, US, and then set sail in in this region. So any advice to to leave me with? I think the the biggest piece of advice I like to give out is like there are a million different ways to do this and only you know how it's going to work for you and and anyone that you're taking along with you and not getting caught up in how other people are doing it i mean you can just to get from you know i don't know the chesapeake to the bahamas you could do the whole thing offshore you could do just overnights you could do it all icw it doesn't have to be You don't have to be miserable doing it to do it the way other people do it. There's ways to to morph this the way that you want to do it and the way you're comfortable with, and you can always push those boundaries a little farther as you get more comfortable. But I think that a lot of times people feel like they have to jump both feet in in the deep end, and you don't have to do that. And there seems to be this like weird subculture in some cruising circles is that. Whoever's the most miserable wins. I just don't think that's true. Yeah. No. There's, there's, there's so many ways to do this, right? 
Yeah, I think just don't give yourself too many expectations when you first start about how you're going to want to do this. Because if you'd asked us when we first started, I would have said, I want to cross the Atlantic Ocean in our Ulberg 30. And I think about three months in, that dream crashed and burned pretty damn quickly. <laughs> I think that dream crashed and burned on the near New Jersey coast. <laughs> Tell me about that. What happened? Because you upgraded from a 30-foot boat to a 37-foot boat. So did you, was it just that there wasn't enough space to live on or what? what was, was... Talk to me about that. There's a lot of things, right? It's a combination of things. I think that we kind of realized what kind of cruising we really like to do. And we do enjoy doing some offshore hops that are overnights or two overnights. And and with the Allberg and our comfort level, or particularly my comfort level, the Allberg 30 cult classic, and it will take you around the world. And I always joke, you just may not want to be on it when it happens because it's, it's a wet boat. It gets, it's a light boat. So it gets tossed around for its size. It's heavy, but as a boat, it's light. And so you get tossed around by the waves a lot. And I think we just realized that we wanted something just a little bit bigger, just a little bit heavier, faster, a little bit faster. And, and the tartan really checked all of our boxes in terms of what we were looking for in a long-term cruising boat. And part of that also was a little bit better accessibility for me because I have a knee that already needs to be replaced. Um, but we're trying to eke that out as long as we possibly can. So as my mobility t- will get worse come- over coming years, we needed a boat that was a little bit easier to get around as well. And the tartan checks that box as well. So I think I love our Alberg. I think she's a fantastic boat. And and there's somebody out there. are people out there circumnavigating on them right now. I'm just not one of those people. There's a right boat for everybody. And I think you mentioned it before, like, you know, don't go into it expecting that you know everything on how you yourself will want to cruise because you're kind of going in blind initially like everybody is. And then you learn a lot about yourself and your boat and how everything works with your partner or whoever you're sailing with. Uh, So there's definitely a learning curve to that. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind for sure. Yeah, I think we have definitely like our threshold for weather, our threshold for for seas, all of that has increased pretty significantly on this boat. And some of that is just, I like the motion better. And there are people that would say that the motion on the Alberg is better. But for me personally, I, I love the way that this boat handles herself in seas. So I think that just knowing your boat and, and being willing to say, Hey, what we have right now is not working for us. What are our other options is also kind of something. Don't be so stubborn that you are miserable on what you have. Yeah, that's a good point. And of course, you know, try to do as much research as possible. I can't even count the number of people who've told me on the podcast, like, Oh, just get on as many boats as you can before you buy your own. So I'm, I'm keeping that at the back of my head. <laughs> Absolutely. That is great advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all, all your advice and your tips and for sharing your experiences. And can you tell everybody where can they go find your blog and your Instagram and your YouTube? Because I've mentioned them all and they are all great resources. Sure. We are on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook at Abroad Reach Travel. And we are uh, also have a website that has some blog posts that is abroadreachtravel.com. A big thank you to Gwen and Andy for their tips and advice for the East Coast. 
I thought this was such a helpful chat. There is a ton more information on all these regions on the Abroad Reach Travel blog and YouTube channel, which I have linked below for you. As usual, thank you for listening. Next week, it's time for another sailing adventure in a different part of the world. In the meantime, you can come say hi on Facebook or Instagram, where you can find me as Liverpool Sailing Podcast. Bye for now! A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.